Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. preach a standalone message today out of Philippians, so if you have a Bible, you can, can open it up to Philippians chapter 3. If you're using one of the chair Bibles, that's in, I think, page 692. Then next week, we are going to uh, do kind of a message where we cast a little bit of vision for this upcoming year, and we reorient ourselves as a church to what our, our, our value is of the gospel, and uh, a lot of churches are driven by mission statements and and uh, statements of, of vision, and we're really driven by three questions primarily, and those three questions are, what is the gospel? And the second question is, how has Christ called us to live together in community? And then the third question is, what then, what mission has he put us on as a people? So those three questions, if you've been through our member class or our LifePoint leader training, those are very familiar questions, and we want to come back to those uh, on a periodic basis, and so we're going to come back to that at the beginning of the year. January 2nd, and we'll look at those three questions and, uh, and also kind of lay out some things that we as a church are praying for this upcoming year. So that's where we'll be. And then on January 9th, we're going to pick back up in our series through 1 Corinthians. And uh, actually, uh, I want to encourage you to, to really make those next few messages in Corinthians a real priority to dial into. I think chapter 5, which is what we're going to handle on January 9th, is one of the most important topics that we will cover as a church. It's talking about church discipline. And, and then we're going to get into chapter 6, which talks about immorality and in particular sexual immorality. And so I realize we have the middle schoolers in here with us uh, on Sunday mornings. And so dads, if you haven't had the talk with your kids, um, you need to do that sometime before the ninth. <laughs> Uh, because we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna chop it up. Let's just put it that way. Um, of course, we'll we'll be um, respectful, but uh, there's things that we need to cover as a church. So January 9th, we're gonna talk about church discipline and and First Corinthians chapter five. It will be a very important. I, actually, I think other than the gospel, I think that the things we're gonna cover in the next couple weeks in Corinthians are some of the most important things that we'll talk about as a church up to this point. So, I encourage you to to uh, read ahead and get ready for that. Um, also, before I. I get into Philippians chapter 3. I just want to pause for a moment to pray for our young men and women in the military. Uh, I spent a few years in the military. In fact, that's how I, I got here, Fort Benning. And uh, th- these are just, these are tough times to be away from family. We've got a lot of guys that are in the Army here. A lot of them are home on block leave right now, but there are many more. I don't think we have anybody in the church right now that's deployed. Uh, that is off the top of my head, but there's uh, thousands of men and women that are in Afghanistan and Iraq, and we need to pray for our soldiers and uh, their families back home. We need to pray for our president as well. Um, we we uh, do that occasionally. We need to do it more often, but we're very thankful for the authority that God has given us, regardless of what side of the political aisle you are on. Um, we are very thankful for our country, for our democracy, and the scriptures tell us that we should be very thankful for President Obama, which we should be, and we should pray for him. The pressures on that man are intense, and so we pray that God would give him wisdom. And, uh, and before we get into the word today, let's spend just a moment praying for our military, for our president and his uh, cabinet, and then, uh, then we'll get into it. All right, let's do it. Lord, thank you so much for this time of year. I, Lord, I know that uh, just being completely honest, 
obviously before you and these people, the, the holidays can be kind of a strange time for us. It's a time of joy, but also I realize that a lot of people are given easily to depression and just stress and difficulty in these times. And so, Lord, wherever we are on the map, whether we had a great day yesterday or whether there's some, you know, there's just something that rung hollow in our hearts about yesterday or there's some stress in the family or maybe we're separated from family by some geographic distance. God, we're, we're aware that our hearts are torn in a million different directions, whether it is some sort, of, um, some sort of sadness that hits us or whether it is a joy that sort of deadens on itself. I pray, God, that you would lift our hearts and our minds and our spirits so that even today, for just a few moments, we would reflect upon what Christ has done for us in this beautiful passage that is so good to remember at the end of the year as we look forward to a new year. I pray, God, that you'd stir our hearts with affection for Jesus. Lord, in particular, we pray for our military, the men and women that are deployed, that are separated, that are in harm's way even now. We know that war doesn't take any vacation. So I pray, Lord, for uh, our, our troops in, deployed in Iraq, that you'd keep them safe, that you'd have our leaders lead well there, the same in Afghanistan. I pray, God, for in both situations, a peaceful end to the conflict as soon as possible and for doors to be open for the gospel. And Lord, in particular, we pray also for President Obama. We thank you for him, that you have appointed him over us as our leader for this time. And we pray that you'd give him great wisdom. We pray that you'd give him clarity. And I pray, Lord, that he would surround himself as there seems to be a shift every year in Washington at this time of the year. I pray that he'd surround himself with people who are wise, who have purity of motive. And Lord, in particular, I pray for his stance on abortion, that you would maybe in your providence see fit to change his heart and to reverse his stance on that. I pray for Christians that we would be, uh, as a church, as we approach Pro-Life Sunday in January, uh, that our stance would not just be one that's on our lips, but that's in our hearts, and that we would be people who are eager to adopt, and that our church would be a safe haven as foster homes, and that we would have a church full of families ready to adopt. But God, nonetheless, we pray that you would bless President Obama, give him good rest, bless our military leaders, and give them wisdom. And now, Lord, as we open up your word, I do pray, God, that for just a few moments, you would set our minds on Christ, and that you would encourage us through your word, your holy word, which is true, is for us today. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, <clears throat> I must admit it's always a challenge to think about what to preach uh, on the day after Christmas in between um, some messages that we're going through in Corinthians. And so um, I thought I'd go back to uh, a chapter that I go back to at the end of every year and the beginning of every year, Philippians chapter 3, which is just one of those great passages of Scripture to come to again, especially as you're as you're looking forward and as you're reflecting back. So let me, let me begin in, in Philippians chapter 3, and let's, let's pick up mid-chapter in verse 8. And by the way, it's good to have the kids in here. Um, we're giving our, our children's church workers a break, and so if your kids are, are squirming around a little bit, we've got the elementary age kids with us. Uh, don't worry about that. It's good to have them. We, we're glad that you are here with us, boys and girls. I'm going to pick up in verse 8. Remember the, the context of Philippians is this is a church that Paul planted earlier in his ministry. And now he is towards the end of his life waiting in a Roman prison cell 
for the judgment from the emperor of Rome on his life. And so he's writing to a group of people that he planted their church years before, and he planted it under the circumstances of that he was in Philippi preaching the gospel, and he went to that city, and there was no witness of the gospel. There were no Christians really to note at that time. And he happened upon a lady named Lydia, who was a businesswoman at the time, and he witnessed to her. The Lord opened her heart, it says in Acts chapter 16, I believe it is, to the gospel. She became a Christian, and she invited Paul to start holding church services in her home. Her home literally becomes the first church there in Philippi, and her church is planted in their home, in her home there. And then Paul gets thrown in prison just a short while later there in Philippi. And while he's in prison, the Lord, in his power, breaks Paul out of prison as he and Silas, I think, are, are singing hymns there in the prison cell in Philippi. So this church was planted by God miraculously breaking Paul out of prison. And now, years later, he's writing back to these same people in prison again, but evidently in this particular instance, due to God's providence and sovereignty, he deemed to not break Paul out of prison. And so just even as we think about the context of this letter, that's an amazing thing to think about how sometimes in God's wise and often mysterious providence, he will do something this way this particular time, but not this way another particular time. One time this church is planted by a prison break, and now he's writing back in prison not bemoaning the fact that God has not broken him out of prison, but actually giving thanks to God for the great circumstance that now he can witness to the Roman guards, which is an amazing truth. But let's pick up in verse 8 of chapter 3, and we'll just uh, read and stop along the way. And I think I'm going to make it through maybe verse 16. And, uh, and I realize that it's the day after Christmas. I realize that all the kids in this room are praying that there's snow flurries right now, and that when they go out there, will be maybe be something that sticks we woke up to utter disappointment that it had melted this morning. And I recognize, I can even see it on your faces that you are not totally here this morning, and that's okay. If there's one thing I learned as a lieutenant at Fort Benning, it is to understand the situation. In fact, when you write an op order, that's one of the first things that you have to write, situation. And um, so um, I will do my best to be to the point today. All right, let's go. Let's get started. uh, Philippians chapter 3, verse 8. This is what Paul writes. Indeed... I count, listen to these words now, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Think about just the enormity of that statement. As I reflect on 2010 and as I look forward to 2011, we can give, isn't there sort of a Christian lingo that It's like language that we speak to one another in church. But if we actually lived that language, just think how radical our lives would be. And Paul is saying here that he counts everything as loss compared to what it is to know Christ. And he says that he has suffered the loss of all things and counts them as rubbish in order that he may gain Christ. I don't know what your living room looks like, but I have four small children, ages 12, Nine, uh, nine, yeah, a nine, five, and three, and uh, our living room looks like a bomb went off in it. Uh, there's some rubbish, there's some wrapping paper, there's some empty boxes, there's some cookie crumbs ground into our new carpet. 
but I'm not bitter. Um, there's, there's stuff all over the place, and we just have piles and piles of stuff, <laughs> don't we? And we actually went low-key this Christmas, and we still just somehow just like the, the garbage, it, it, like it, it, it multiplied. Just think about all the stuff in our lives. And I, this is not a beat you up sort of a sermon. This is not a sell everything we have and let's move out and, you know, to Tent City. But it's a good time to consider the things upon which we build our lives and our esteem and our significance. And Paul is writing here and he says he counts these things as rubbish. And what are those things? Well, if we were to go ahead uh, back up at the beginning of chapter 3, he talks about his credentials as a pure blooded Jew raised in a certain sect of Judaism upon which he was previously basing his righteousness. And he says, compared to what he knows now in Christ, he's counting all of that as rubbish. And I just think about all of the things that as I reflect back on successes and failures and just kind of what my life is sort of standing on, think about in comparison to knowing Christ, really counting that all as is rubbish. That is a profound statement. Uh, I was thinking about this just the other day about my life and about kind of my identity. I read this blog post about identity and I, I really began to think about what my identity is wrapped up in. I, I, I admit that I take great joy in being your pastor and, uh, and I take great joy in being a father and a husband. But I, I wonder if all of that were stripped from me if 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 we're all laid bare really what what my sense of self-worth rests on that's a great question to ask yourself at the end of the year what does it rest on really what does it rest on what if what if i have to ask myself what if we had not got this new building and what if now we were not like a church of you know several hundred people that just seems to have this momentum and enthusiasm and just this 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 joy about it and what if, what if that were not in my life now? Would, would, I, would I still find my esteem in Christ? What if I didn't have a wife who I loved and who is just, who's just a, a, an absolute beautiful picture of Christ to me? What if I didn't have this marriage that I just was comfortable in, that I could trust in? What if, what if that were not there? What if I didn't have four healthy children? What if I didn't have, what if all of these things that I just sort of take for granted were just sort of not there in my life? And some of you may be in that situation. And again, it's not to, it's not to despise these blessings of God, but it is to say that when we sort of subconsciously rest in those things, the good things that God has given us can quickly become idols that we, that we are resting and finding in our, our identity in. And Paul is writing to the Philippians and he's saying that in comparison to knowing Christ, all of these things I count as rubbish. That is a profound statement. He says that in order there at the end of verse 8, in order that I may gain Christ and be, verse 9, and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. In other words, not because I have adhered to these regulations that have been uh, that have been the law of his people, the Old Testament, Moses' law, and all of the regulations that come from that. He says his righteousness or his right standing with God doesn't come through his ability to adhere to that law. And if we were thinking about it in a 2010 context as American Christians, our righteousness doesn't come in 
in what we do for Christ, our church attendance, our involvement in the ministry of our local church, or our good works, but our righteousness comes through faith there, midway through verse 9, through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. You know one of the tenets of our faith is that we are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Those are some of the pillars of the Protestant Reformation, that we are justified by faith alone. That means that you are made right with God, not because you are relatively more moral than the person next to you, but it means that you are justified because solely by the grace of God and the gift of faith that he has given you. So even if you have faith in Christ, now you can't even take credit for that, Ephesians 2 says. You can't even boast in that because even that was a gift. If you have saving faith in Christ, it is because God gave it to you as a gift. And that is the sole reason for our right standing with God. Paul lays out clearly, we are justified by faith. But here's the beautiful truth of the New Testament and Paul's letters here, especially in Philippians, is that this is the reformers. The reformers said this back in the 15, 1600s. They said that, that, that we are justified alone by faith, but the faith that justifies is not alone. Meaning that our right standing with God is solely by the gift of faith that he has given us and by nothing else, not by being a good kid, not by being uh, uh, a guy that grows up in a church, not by being, in Paul's case, a Jew that, that, that followed the law better than other Jews, but we are justified solely by faith in what Christ has done on the cross, taking our sin on his shoulders, removing it from us for all those that would repent and believe. And then here's, here's what happens. This is this beautiful, great exchange, is that we then get the righteousness of Christ. It becomes counted to us. So that faith that justifies, we're, faith, we're justified by faith alone, but the faith that God gives us that we then place in Christ is not all, then we also get the righteousness of Christ. And so again, back to what we're basing our self-esteem on. What am I basing it on? That, I, that I'm relatively more righteous than I was maybe as a, an 18-year-old or a 25-year-old? No, it's all Christ. And even the righteousness that I have came by faith. So faith that just, we're justified by faith alone, but the faith that justifies is not alone. It comes with, it carries with it this righteousness of Christ that is ours. Think about that. Now, if you're a Christian, Think about this now. If you're a Christian, when God looks at you, he looks and sees the righteousness of Christ which has been counted towards you when you believe. How's your 2010 ending up? Feeling a little ragged? Feeling a little, uh, a little broken down? When Christ looks at us, when God looks at us, he sees the righteousness of Christ. To see ourselves any other way would be to, in an idolatrous way, covet our failure and our sin as more powerful than Christ's work on the cross. I need to remember that daily. I need to remember that daily, that Christ's righteousness on the cross is more powerful than my sin. Let's keep going. 
Verse 9, be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. faith. Verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share, listen to this, and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. We, We talk about this a lot, and I don't need to beat this up here today. But one of the faulty messages of kind of the American Christian machine is that if you will just come to Christ, then everything will kind of work out in your favor when actually the witness of the scriptures is often 180 degrees in the opposite direction. That's not to say that we need to be spiritual masochists and, and, and want pain. But it means to say that, that as one of my heroes, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German pastor back in the 1940s who opposed Hitler, said that when Christ calls a man, he bids him to come and die. He bids him to come and die. And Paul is seeing that this faith in Christ that has made him new, this righteousness that is given, brings him into this ability to know Christ. And he doesn't say in the power of his blessing and that everything is going to seem to go now in the power of, of God to, to move mountains, although certainly there is power in God. But, but he, he has this so that he would know Christ and share in his sufferings. Let's weave this into the fabric of how we look at a new year. Think about 2011 and, and our desire for good things, which I think is a, is a good and noble thing to do. You want to do well. We want to achieve. But yet woven into that is this, is this, is this trust in the providence of God and this imitation of Christ. It, it oftentimes will take us into suffering, that if we really want to model Christ in this upcoming year, it will oftentimes take us in, into direct opposition with this world. So let's just weave that into the fabric of this new year. In fact, I come from the nation of Southern California, also known as Northern Mexico, um, where our native language is Spanglish, kind of a beautiful combination of those two languages. And in fact, in my um, almost native tongue, we don't say Happy New Year, we say Prospero Año, (laughs) which means Prosperous New Year. Let's weave this truth into that. Suffering New Year in the name of Jesus. Hallelujah. I'm not saying we lead with that Monday morning, the third at work. But, but listen to the, to the contrast of Paul compared to the idolatry of, of the American heart. I want to know Christ so that I would share in his suffering. Suffering will come. It will come for us as individuals. It is upon some of us right now, and it will come for us as a church in some form in 2011. And I pray that as we suffer, we would suffer for the glory of God and for our joy. Because when we suffer, we display to the world in a peculiar way. When we suffer here in this life, we display the gospel in a way that blessing cannot. What suffering does is it displays the supremacy of Christ over this world. You see, blessing can do that too, but blessing more often than not tends to to sort of turn our eyes on that thing, on that gift. And of course, we want to be blessed. There's biblical witness for praying for blessing, but also in a beautiful way, difficulty and trial and sharing in Christ's suffering, however that takes, whether it's physical or emotional or sickness or economic or whatever, what it does in a peculiar way, like blessing or, 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 or uh, uh, prosperity cannot do is it tunes us to display the preference of Christ 
over and against the things of this world. And so I, I think this is a strange, maybe unusual way for us to talk, but I'm praying that, that we would suffer well in 2011. I pray that I, in particular, would suffer, suffer well, that I would share in Christ's suffering. Well, let's keep going. Verse 12. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Verse 13, brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting. I think this is just a phrase that maybe we would want to memorize going into this new year. Forgetting what lies behind and straining to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That word forgetting in the original language Greek doesn't literally mean that you remove the memories. In fact, I think that's it's impossible while we're still here on this earth. We can't forget our failures or our sin or things that have happened to us in the past or in this past year. But what that word literally means is to sort of lose the grip, to unclutch your fingers from that thing. And Paul is saying is, is I'm going to unclutch my fingers from these things in my rear view mirror and I am going to strain or clutch my hands onto these things that God has for me ahead. What in this last year is something that maybe you're clutching to? Maybe it's a past failure. Maybe it's a sin against you. Maybe it's a thing that you have done. And in sort of an idolatrous kind of way, you're clutching onto that thing and saying, this, this thing is still going to define me in 2011. I think the witness of the scriptures, as Paul would say, is, is let go of that thing. You can't just remove it from your life. In fact, the fact that you still have memory of that thing may be a very protective thing that God allows to stay in your life. And David says in Psalm 51 about his sin, that it is ever before him. It becomes a protective thing in our life so that we remember so that we can look back and remember the goodness and the mercy and the grace of God in that moment. But if we clutch onto that thing, we can even make our failure sort of an idol where we esteem that thing to be of more defining power in our life than the grace and mercy of God. And what, what, is, it, what is it for you? What, what thing are you clutching on? We've, we've taken a turn here. At the beginning of this verse that we looked at, Paul laid aside his successes compared to what Christ has done. And now he's reflecting, it seems like, on his failures. You see, there's both ends of the spectrum here. We can rest on self-righteousness or we can cling to our past failure. Either way, what Paul is saying here is that he wants to strain forward to Christ, what lies ahead. Verse 14, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Verse 15, let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise... God will reveal that also to you. I, I love that in particular. I don't really want to settle too much on this, but Paul is saying, look, basically I'm right, and this is the way you should think, and if you're thinking wrong, God will show you that you're wrong. I just love that. I, I just, I want to have the courage someday to say that, but I'm not quite there yet. Verse 16. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Let us hold true to what we have attained. Here's one of my New Year's resolutions as uh, I go, and I'm not necessarily a resolution kind of a guy. But one, of my, one of the things that I want to just be true in my life in 2011, uh, I am a gatherer of knowledge. I love to read. Um, I, I, in fact, a peaceful day for me would be 
just quietness, um, nobody crying, nobody, nobody fussing at their brother, um, just nobody in our bathroom um, that it, it doesn't actually have a bed in our master bedroom. Um, I'm looking at two pe- people in particular right now that live in my house that uh, have a room upstairs. Just quietness, no, no, and just reading. I love to gather knowledge. I just love to read. That, that's, I just love to do that. But there's something that I've noticed in me is that I'll, I'll, I'll acquire just thoughts in my mind, but it, a lot of times it doesn't actually weave itself into my actual life. And Paul is writing here, he says, I want you to live up to what you have already attained. In other words, what good is it if we come and we we revel and we delight in the Word of God, if we sing these great songs about God, if we do these Bible studies, if we crank out a Bible list, if we, if we advance our knowledge of Christ, if it doesn't actually work itself into the actual fabric of our lives. You know what happens, I think, in the lives of many Christians, I think in particular Christians in our region of the country, is that there's this sort of gap between what we confess and what we actually do. And it creates this sort of culture of religious hypocrisy of which I am a charter member, right? We actually, we have these things that we say we believe and we've read the, the latest book and, and we've got, you know, I've got it. I think, I actually think I'm ordering one. My parents gave me a gift card for Amazon and I am ordering, I think, the only John Piper book that I do not yet have. It will be at my doorstep in a couple of days. I now have everything that John Piper has ever written, all right? And it's good stuff. And you got good books. We're going to sell these books that are in the resource room. Lord willing, we'll have that kicked off at the beginning of the year. We're people that love good theology. We love to quote Augustine and Calvin and Jonathan Edwards and all these cats who did great things for the gospel. And it's like this gap can begin to develop between what we say and what we actually do. And we become sort of a hypocritical, confessing crowd. We sing all the songs and we we have all the right statements, but we don't actually do it. And I want to do it more in 2011. Does that make sense? I want to do it. I I I want the power of the gospel to work its way into the fabric of my life. I want the power of the gospel that I know to work its way into the fabric of the families in this church. I want the power of the gospel to seize the heart of men in this church. And I want insecurities to be broken. And I want habitual secret sin habits to be shattered. And I want marriages to be restored. And I want young men and women to be called to give their life to the advance of the gospel in dangerous places. And I want rich people to be unbelievably generous with their stuff, not so that we can build some big building that becomes a pathetic shrine, but that we would give our money away for the glory of God. And I want poor people to be even more generous with what God has given them. And I want middle class people to, to just see their life as as seed to be scattered for the gospel. And I want this church to not be just a group of people who are proud in what they have accomplished, but that we would be people, that I would be a preacher, a pastor, a pastor, a husband, and a father who actually lives up to the things that I confess. 
What would my life look like? What would your life look like if we just, just 25% of what we say that our life actually caught up to that? What would it look like? What one great truth in your life can, can you just say, I'm going to nail down, I'm going to drill down on that thing, and I'm going I'm to live it this year. I'm going to live it to the glory of God and the joy of his people. What, what could that be in your life? Well, I'm going to let... I'm going to let God settle that in your heart right now, but that's my challenge for us on this day after Christmas, that we would live up to what we have attained, that the gospel would permeate, fill, shatter, mold, dominate our very lives, and that if there's a young man or a young woman in this room right now that uh, senses that God there's an old man or an old woman that senses that God wants to call you out of hypocrisy, self-righteousness, or guilt. That you would mark today as the day that the Lord spoke to you. And if there be a Christian who's gotten into the rut of comfort and easy Christian community and sort of subconscious self-absorbent, absorbent absorption that today would be the day that you would mark that God began to rattle your cage and call you out of that and if there be a, a young pastor who uh, can put it on autopilot pretty easily and can become pretty self-righteous and smug about his theology or whatever that God would rattle my heart and cage so that I would, to a greater degree, live up, live up to what I have already attained this year. Well, let's pray and ask the Lord to stir our hearts. Oh Lord, as we come now to think about these things and respond to these things, I do pray, God, for my own heart, um, that you would stir me. Lord, I, I, it is very easy to be uh, a Christian in our culture and to just kind of put it on autopilot. So I, I do pray to God that you'd stir my heart in particular. Lord, I pray that you'd give me great confidence and boldness in the gospel. Lord, I pray for young men in this church who just have not really clicked in. I pray that, I pray that uh, even today your Holy Spirit would uh, let some scales fall from their eyes and they would see what you're calling them to. There's nothing in this world worth clinging to compared to your righteousness, compared to faith in Christ, compared to your beautiful gospel. Lord, if there's visitors in this room and they're just kind of here visiting with family, I do pray, God, that you would, right now, you would, in a beautiful, profound, clear way, would speak to them. Speak to all of us, God. And give us a clarity for living. Give us a clarity for the gospel. Give us a clarity for mission. Lord, for our marriages, for our parenting, for our single brothers and sisters. And God, give us a, a clear...
clarity. Don't just let us wander in, zigzag into 2011, just kind of punching a ticket. But God, over these next couple of days, stir our hearts for a passion for living for Jesus. Lord, would we be marked by giving our lives away radically for the advance of your gospel? Would you mark our lives with that? Or if there's a person in this room who does not know you, God, would, would right now, would they turn from self-trust? Would they turn from self-righteousness? Would they turn from sin? And God, would you give them the gift of faith and repentance so that they would turn and trust in you? And, and friend, if that's you right now, right now, do that. Turn, stop looking at yourself and look to Christ. Stop looking to your sin, that thing that you covet, that always promises but never delivers. Turn from that thing and trust in what Christ has done for you right now on the cross. He died for the very thing that you cannot beat. He died right now for you if you will trust in him in what he has done on the cross as a sacrifice of God's wrath that is barreling down on your head right now that your only hope of averting that is, is what Christ has done for you. So trust right now in Christ. Do that, friend, right now. Turn from your sin. Turn from leaning on your self-righteousness and trust in Christ, even as, even as I'm speaking right now. Lord, I pray that if there's somebody in here that needs to do that, they would do that right now. And God, for the rest of us Christians in this room, stir our hearts, God. Give us a holy discontent and a dissatisfaction with status quo so that in our little feeble lives, you might use us for the advance of the gospel, for the glory of your name, and for the joy of your people. Lord, I pray that this would be the case first in my life. And Lord, I pray that it would be the case in the life of this church. Lord, you've been so good to us, and we give you all glory because you alone are good. And Lord, I pray these things in the mighty name of Christ, our Savior. Amen.